Welcome, my friends, to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. I think you mean Tomb of Midnight, an amalgam horror podcast. Frightful? What are you doing here? What? We were invited. We? You mean Daly's here too? Oh, I'm afraid so, old friend. What? Wait. What day is it? Oh, no. Oh, yes. <laughs> Welcome back to Tomb of Midnight and Amalgam Horror Podcast. My name is James Hickson. I'm Trey Lawson. And wait a minute. Tomb of Midnight? Hey, Trey, what's going on here? I don't know. Is it just me or does the tomb look a little different than it used to? And a little crowded, too. Who are you? I'm Ryan Daly. Ryan Daly? The host of Midnight, the podcasting hour? The same. What are you doing here? Uh, you asked me to talk about, you asked me if I wanted to be on your show, and I said, I love Marvel horror books. And that was the first, you know, you know, bait and switch of the, of the conversation. <laughs> All right, guys. So, go ahead, Trey. We are in something of a mix-up as far as the subjects at hand, and that's going to become apparent as we get into uh, the comics. Um, so, James, why don't you explain what's going on here? Oh, Jesus, it's on me. Okay. Yep. Uh, <laughs> sure, just because it was my idea. Um, okay. So, Amalgam Comics was the result of the Marvel versus DC crossover. And if you were a kid of the 90s like me, this was a huge event. There had been crossovers between the two companies before, but this was the first time the two, you know, really clashed on a full huge scale. It happened in 1996, yeah, the most 90s year. This ever. wasn't this wasn't like one character crossing over with another character because we we'd had Superman, Spider-Man, stuff like that. Um, but this was like a whole roster of Marvel characters crossing over with a whole roster of DC characters. Exactly, and it happened in 1996, which I'm pretty sure most scientists agree are, it was peak 90s. I, I would I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, I was 12 years old. And I'm, as I'm sure you can imagine, this was a huge deal. Yeah, and uh, we had, what, Ron Mars and Peter David writing, I think? Right. Yeah. Which, again, that's like, for DC and Marvel, those are two of the most 90s guys there were. Yep. Now, this was a uh, limited series, lasting only four issues. Uh, it basically ran from April to May 1996, um, art artwork by um, such greats as Dan Jurgens, again, very '90s fellow. Yep. Famously known for, um, of course, the Death of Superman. Right, right. And one of the things that was very unique about this crossover is that fans actually were allowed to vote on who would win in each of these miniseries fights. On some of yeah. them, yeah. They didn't get to vote on all of them, yeah. So, this is just from the Wikipedia entry on it. Um, 
Two godly brothers who personify the DC and Marvel Universe become aware of the other's existence and challenge one another to a series of duels involving each universe's respective superheroes. The losing universe would cease to exist. The story has an out-of-universe component in that the outcomes of primary battles were determined by reader voting. But of course, at the end of the third issue, the two brothers decide instead of fighting each other, they will amalgamate into a single being and that is how the amalgam universe was born and it got real complicated they introduced a new character called access as part of this um who appeared in his own title as part of uh the transition from dc versus marvel to all out to the amalgam universe um technically that character is owned by both dc and marvel which is why he rarely shows up these days. Um, but it, it, it is a very convoluted origin for the Amalgam universe. Actually, let me check when the last time he appeared was. I think it was in a Marvel comic. Okay, he was briefly mentioned in the Superman Fantastic Four crossover. That makes sense. Yeah, his last appearance was Unlimited Access. Okay, so that, that was uh, in the second run of Amalgam books. Right, the not-quite-Amalgam that's the other thing that's worth noting, is there were actually uh, two different Amalgam runs. Um, one that immediately came out of DC versus Marvel, and then another that was, I think, a year later. Right. Now, as I stated, I was 12 when this crossover happened, so I ate it up with a spoon. And I, I, did, I didn't have access to all of them, but the ones that I did get to see, I, I was really into. Yeah. Now, the first Amalgam book I saw on, an, on a spinner rack, believe it or not, was Spider-Boy Team-Up number one, which... Did we actually explain what the premise of the Amalgam universe was? Not particularly, no. We just kind of dove into things. Um, but you might be able to gather it from where James said DC versus Marvel ended, which was the two universes smashing together. Um, so what Amalgam, the result of that was... Uh, was a series of one-shots presenting characters made up of elements of both DC and Marvel characters. So instead of Superman or Captain America, you had Super Soldier. And all of these characters were presented as though they had all of the continuity and history of something as long-running as the DC or Marvel universe. Right. And Ryan... I think both Trey and I were kind of aware of this when it happened, but I think from talking to you earlier, you were completely unaware of this when it was happening. I, well, yeah, you mentioned that 1996 was sort of like peak 90s. That might have something to do with the fact that, like, this is right around the time that I first checked out of comics. Um, I, like, the late 90s, I, kind, I, I did very little comic book reading and, and even less comic book purchasing. Um, so, like, this was, like, this, yeah, I, I basically, I missed this era. Like, I, I had sort of, like, burnt out. I was going into high school. I was a few years older than you. Um, and just a little, like, it just, I missed it. So I missed DC versus Marvel. And then I missed the Amalgam comics when their first run. I heard about them a few years later when I was getting back in. But to be honest, like, the premise never really grabbed me. Like, when I would hear about it and, like, kind of hear it described, it's like, oh, you know, we're taking, we're mashing up a a Marvel character and a DC character. I thought, okay, that could be interesting. 
But then they kind of said, okay, we're taking Doctor Strange and Doctor Fate and putting them together as Doctor Strange Fate. My instinct was, okay, that doesn't that doesn't sound like anything different than a Doctor Fate or a Doctor Strange story. You're just telling a Doctor Strange story, except he's got the helmet of fate. It's like, or you know, we're we're combining the Fantastic Four with the Challengers of the Unknown. Well, that's just the Fantastic Four, except they're in a mountain. Like so, so yeah. When I when I first heard about the Amalgam, like I, I never I never really once I found out what these comics were, I never had a desire to go and seek them out. Yeah, I think I was lucky in that I came upon the Amalgam Universe really first with Spider Boy, and despite how '90s it is, Spider Boy really has a great design. It's like somebody put a Spider-Man skin on a '90s Superboy costume, and it's a design by Mike Waringo. So yeah, and not just any Spider-Man skin, a Ben Riley skin. True. Because we're we're combining clones with clones, people. Because <laughs> you know, all clones are alike. Um, I, and I think I'm the youngest one here, uh, by just a little bit, but I missed out on most of the DC versus Marvel. I remember flipping through an issue on a spinner rack where, uh, Robin was flirting with Jubilee, which seemed kind of weird. Yes, let's have, let's put the two teenagers together. But I definitely had one or two of the amalgam issues that came after that, including, uh, Challenges of the Fantastic, which is... Honestly, better than you would expect it to be. Um, yes, the the main characters aren't that much different from their original universe counterparts, but I really liked the idea of Galactiac as the villain. <laughs> I'm not disparaging like the stories themselves because again, I, the only amalgam books I've read are the two that we're doing for this for this episode. Uh, so I'm not like disparaging the stories, but to me, like. I assumed that, like, ba- you know, based on what you said, like, describing the Spider-Boy costume, this seemed like an idea that was conceived just as a way of, re- of like, a, like a, a what-if or a sort of, like, flight-of-fancy art project. Like, what if we combine the looks of these two characters? Now, you could still tell a good story with them, but is it a story that integrates both of those things, or is it you know, a story that's really just could be told with either property individually. I don't know. We will we will discuss that more. So, again, I, like, yeah, the, and, the Challenges and, of the Fantastic might be a great story, but it seemed like an idea that was just kind of, like, superficially, like, well, yeah, those are Jack Kirby's two, you know, basically Daredevil, like, four characters. So, yeah. And, and there are some that are way more out there than others. Um, like uh, uh, Lobo the Duck, for example, is... Not the most obvious combination. And I would actually argue that Dark Claw is not one of the more obvious combinations either. Well, having having two different Batman uh, uh, characters, Dark Claw and Bruce Wayne, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., like in two separate books, is not something that I would have necessarily it's thought It's an of. odd choice. And yet other things work really well. For instance, how um, Jordan Green Lantern and Tony Stark Iron Man get combined into Iron Lantern by Kurt Busiek, which was really just a fantastic book, which very nicely captured that kind of Silver Age feel of, you know, um, Gardner Fox and Don Heck um, characters. Yeah, Um, I I think probably the best way to sort of describe 
what Amalgam functionally was. Well, it, it kind of worked like a, a fifth week event, if, you, if you've ever uh, mm-hmm. sort of encountered that phenomenon in comics. Like, it's, it's sort of a novelty, sort of somewhere in between uh, uh, something that can be sort of standalone, but also kind of a what-if kind of thing. Um, they don't do them as much as they used to, but, uh, but, but that, that's really the way I've always looked at it. Yeah. And because we are horror podcasters, we did pull out the two clearly horror books of the line. And Trey, why don't you tell the nice audience what we're talking about today? Yeah, so um, we've got uh, two issues here, which luckily, in terms of the Marvel end of the amalgamations, feature characters that we've already been talking about for a while now. Um, and so we've got Speed Demon number one, um, and then we're going to follow that up with the Mysterious Bat Thing number one. Yep. And we have mixed feelings about these books, which I think we'll get into in the summaries but speaking of the summaries i think that is an excellent time to go to a quick message what do you guys think that sounds good Mm -hmm. definitely we'll be right back in brightest day in blackest night no evil shall escape my sight let those who worship evil's might beware my power green lantern first flight Six Flags introduces Green Lantern First Flight, America's first vertical spin coaster. Save $25 at SixFlags.com. Now with the most coasters on the planet, go big. Go Six Flags Magic Mountain. Welcome back to the Tomb of Midnight. Now we are covering Speed Demon, Issue 1. Uh, this book was cover dated April 1996. It had an on-sale date of February 27th, 1996. The title, Demon's Night. This issue was written by Howard Mackey and James Felder, penciled by Salvador La Roca, inked by Al Milgram, lettered by Richard Starkings, colored by Kevin Tinsley, and edited by Bobby Chase. It's an interesting cover. It, it is. Uh, so, it, it for those of you who don't have the comic in front of you, um, the cover to Speed Demon number one has the title character bursting forward forward at a, at a pay at a run um through a graveyard um his horned skull um of course ablaze he's wearing a red leather jacket with ye- yellow accents and spikes everywhere. spikes everywhere and also knee pads and possibly are those pouches um I can't tell if they're pouches, but he's also got a really sweet belt buckle with a lightning bolt going through it. Yeah, is that supposed to be like a Native American design, or what is that? I have no idea. So, this is a very 90s cover. It is. I could easily under I could easily imagine, like, the flames on this cover being foil or holographic. Right. Or the figure of the speed demon being raised. Yeah. They do the old trick of having the artist credits on the tombstone. Yep. Yep. 
I was going to say, I, I'm not even sure if like we've mentioned or if we're burying the lead, but the speed demon in question, the amalgamated characters that he is based on, is meant to be DC's The Flash and Marvel's Ghost Rider. Once we get into the actual a... issue, I think I think we'll see that he's probably mostly inspired by a different character. Right, but, right. We'll talk more in the um, summary about what a weird combination that was. And, and also... Um, I, I just will say that for all of its 90s-ness, I definitely owned my share of 90s uh, Spirits of Vengeance covers that looked a lot like this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, actually, it, it's capturing, it, like, this could have been a Ghost Rider cover. Like, if you are if you just slightly tweak, like, the, the fact that he's running or something like this, this easily could have yeah, been. Yeah, like, put him on a motorcycle or throw some chains in and you're done. Yeah. yeah. Or, or, I mean, just... It, like strip it down, like just put the Flash in the exact same pose. That could have been, you know, a Flash from like the the Mark Wade Micro Ringo era. Like I've oh, seen the I've sure. seen the Flash posed like that in that exact same running position. I'm pretty sure that's what Larocco was basing it on. Yeah, yeah. All right, I think we should get, probably get into the summary. All right, <clears throat> hold on to something. In Gotham City's infamous crime alley, the rogue guardian Uatu hovers over the drunken Hal Jordan, last surviving member of the Starbrand Corps. Uatu admits to framing Hal Jordan for the destruction of the Corps and killing all of the other guardians. Uatu then activates his green lightsaber and is about to finish Jordan when all of a sudden the speed demon appears in what the caption tells us is a red and yellow blur. Speed Demon is a kind of hulking monster wearing a red and yellow racing bike jacket. His head is a flaming demon skull. Also, he speaks in rhyme. And when Uatu activates his lightsaber, again, the Speed Demon breathes fire and burns the Guardian to ash and bone. Hal Jordan thanks the demon for saving him, but then the demon accuses him of murdering people, possibly the same people that Uatu just confessed to murdering himself and framing Jordan. Regardless, the demon torches Hal with some more Hellfire breath, and then he leaves in what might be interpreted as super speed. Elsewhere, at the Quentin Carnival, Wally West is confronted by a trio of carnival performers, the diminutive Puck, the female Miss Miracle, and the fat Blob. They tell him he needs to leave the carnival, but Wally doesn't want to abandon his uncle Blaze Allen, a stunt rider who recently lost his wife Iris and has taken an interest in the supernatural ever since. Wally notices a reddish blur whiz by his uncle's trailer. Inside, the place is full of occult relics. Speed Demon kneels in a circle and recites a magic incantation that changes him back to none other than Blaze Allen. The transformation is witnessed by Wally, who can't believe his uncle is really the Speed Demon. Blaze recounts how, on the day he married Iris, the ceremony was interrupted by a Grim Reaper-like figure who drained Iris's life force and took her soul away. Blaze is so distraught that he makes some kind of a deal with a devil type situation, I guess, and becomes the Speed Demon. After that, he learns that Iris's soul was taken away by the Night Spectre, who is trying to collect the souls of power, which are purely good or purely evil. Collecting all those souls would give the Night Spectre ultimate power for some reason. Later on, Harvey Osborne, the Green Goblin, flies through the skies of Gotham when he is ambushed by Scarecrow and Silicon Man, who used to be his partners in the Terrible Three. 
The goblin defeats them, perhaps even killing them, when Night Spectre arrives and tries to collect the final soul of power from the goblin. But Speed Demon arrives in time to save him, but then the goblin fights Speed Demon, unmasking in the process and revealing himself to be the badly scarred Two-Faced Goblin. Then Night Spectre returns and Speed Demon fights Night Spectre. Then someone named Arrowcaster shows up and shoots arrows into Speed Demon's eyes and hands, but Speed Demon breathes Hellfire and kills the Arrowcaster. During this fight, the Two-Faced Goblin ran away, so Speed Demon and Night Spectre race to catch him, and inexplicably, the Night Spectre catches the Goblin first. He spirits the guy who has, been, who has the last soul of power to his realm, the Sanctum of Fear, or whatever, and Speed Demon follows him. Back at the circus, the ancient mystic Merlin appears and delivers to Wally West some exposition that we could have used a couple of pages ago. At the end of it, he offers to give Wally the power needed to save his uncle Blaze. Elsewhere, in the Sanctum of Lost Souls, Blaze Allen's soul has been separated from the Speed Demon. The Knight Spectre, having taken possession of Harvey Goblin for some reason, grabs Blaze and says he will have his soul. The Speed Demon won't risk endangering Blaze, so Knight Spectre Goblin is about to take the soul when... a second Speed Demon arrives. This one Wally West, but riding a Hell Cycle like the Ghost Rider, and swinging a chain. The chain wraps around Knight Spectre Two-Face Goblin's neck and slams him into the side of a wall, ending his threat for the rest of this issue, at least. Blaze Allen is ungrateful for the save. Then Blaze and Wally start to argue about Merlin and Night Spectre's motivations, suggesting there was some kind of a race for hell at stake, and that the Speed Demon has won, so maybe the Night Spectre's goal all along was to take over Earth and make it a competing version of hell. Or whatever. Then they find out where the souls of Iris Allen and Jade Garrick have been imprisoned. The demon breathes fire, setting them free so they can at last find peace. Then both speed demons, one running, one riding, take off for their next adventure. Back at the circus, Blaze agrees to take Wally on as his sidekick, because their mission now is to stop the Night Spectre's human host from taking over the world, I guess. Even though it seemed like Harvey Goblin was the human host and Wally already took care of him. After Wally leaves to visit his parents' graves, Blaze wonders which demon bonded with Wally the way Etrigan bonded with him. Could it be the Night Spectre? Is Wally in fact the human host of the Speed Demon's mortal enemy? To be continued next month in Battle Lines Drawn in Blood. Whew. You made that story make a lot more sense than it did in the actual comic. Did I, though? <laughs> Are you sure? Because I still don't think I did. Oh, I still have no idea what happened, but I have a little bit more, less of no idea what happened than I did before you started talking. I think what's amazing to me is that this book has both some of the most bewildering amalgamations and some of the laziest amalgamations. Ooh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, it has both. <laughs> so... Okay, let's go ahead and just talk about the big one in the room. Um, Ryan, you mentioned this earlier that uh, f on paper, Speed Demon is an amalgamation of Ghost Rider and The Flash. But there's a little bit of um, a third. I would, say it's mo I would say it's mostly Etrigan the Demon. 
Um, yes. In fact, I would argue that the Flash part of him is a distant afterthought because when does he really use super speed to any effect in the story? Like when is it even when is it even drawn? Maybe that twice. Way? Like yeah, but like. It's usually it's it's used when he enters a scene and leaves a scene, and it's just kind of like a blur that's not really conveyed very well or very interestingly by the art. The art really lets down the the super speed, but it's not like it's he, almost it's almost like they remembered after the fact and just did it with the captions. Yeah, yeah, you're actually it's, right because I didn't notice this until you started talking about it, but I guess my brain was filling in the fact that oh. He's an amalgamation of Flash and Ghostwire. He must be using super speed during all this. But he mostly breathes fire and speaks in rhyme. Yeah, you're not wrong. And, like, the one time, like, he and the Night Spectre race to track down the Green Goblin, Night Spectre gets to him first. Like, the one thing when you're racing somebody else and you have super speed, how do you lose? Like, I, I, again, like, I don't, I don't know if like they, they even remembered when they were telling the story that he's part Flash, other than his named after Barry Allen. And and the the second uh, Speed Demon is one hundred percent Danny Ketch. Like there is besides the name, there is very little of Wally West in there. Possibly the color right. scheme. Oh yes, he he has the red and yellow, but like again, he rides a motorcycle. Certainly no super speed there. And I'm really puzzled by why they chose to have that motorcycle in there except the, I guess the artist wanted to draw a motorcycle because it's a Ghost Rider comic, kinda? Well, it's Danny Ketch in particular in that moment of Marvel Comics his powers were more directly tied to the motorcycle. Um... Yeah, like the motorcycle had the flaming wheels. It was like almost like a, a, yeah. a manifestation well, and... of his power. The original Ghost Rider there's has... even the mention. There's even the mention of when he transforms back into human that the the uh gas uh the cover on the gas can like lights up like that was a thing like he touched the gas tank of the motorcycle to transform right right yeah and the chains were also a danny catch thing okay so let's talk about some of the lazier amalgamations here since we've talked about the only good ones ish good good ish (laughs) um well, so there's the uh, the circus of fourth world characters, and plus Blob. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Blob and, oh goodness. Uh, is um, it Slug? Was he the Flash guy? Crap. Chunk. Chunk. Chunk, that's who it is. Yeah. So they com- they've combined Blob and Chunk. Right. And then Puck and Oberon, it seems like. Um, and yeah. then Mr. Miracle. And I'm assuming it's crystal based on like the coloring of the hair. Yeah. Um, maybe? Miss Miracle. Yes. I, I just looked it up. And yes, a uh, combination of crystal and uh, Mr. Miracle. I just thought like, I saw like the black line through her hair, if, unless that was supposed to be shadow. But I guess it's not because you, you said it's confirmed. So. Right. Um. Yeah, so those, for one thing, it's basically a one-page cameo, mm. but there's just not much to those amalgamations. Well, no, they're at the wedding. Oh, that's true. They're in the flashback. Which, we'll get to that later. Um, so, these... <laughs> who is who is, who is is Roy Harper amalgamated with? I have no clue. Um, I think 
spellcaster. I, I looked that. I had to look that up. Um, okay. I, I don't remember everything. Because I could not tell. It was, it was a combination of Red Arrow slash Arsenal slash Speedy um, and um, uh, Spellcaster, I think. Okay. Um, which is, again, like, why is that character even here? Um, right. And then we've got the, the Terrible Trio or the Terrible Three, the Terrible Three, um, which is, it, it's just Green Goblin. Like, they call him Green Goblin and then you they take his, his mask off and you realize, oh, it's, it's Two-Face, but it's like, but he, when he wears the mask, it's just Green Goblin. It's... Right, like, at least have the mask be two-tone or something. Right. right, and then Scarecrow, it's a combination of Marvel Scarecrow and DC Scarecrow. Then it's just Scarecrow, you're not amalgamating anything. Those two characters are so close to being the same anyway. Right, right. And then Silicon uh, and Man, then... which is Sandman it's what, Plastic, Plastic Man. Man. Which again yeah. looks is just Sandman with the with Plastic Man's glasses and and color scheme, right? Yeah. But the worst one, it, like you mentioned, like the inexplicable ones, like Night Spectre. It's a cross between the Spectre and Nightmare. Right. But what does he do that is anything like either of them? Like, like closer to Nightmare, I guess, in the collecting souls part. I guess, but 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 Spectre at that point I associate with was it was it the the uh, Ostrander run in the nineties? Yes, yeah, yeah, like which which was really like serious and interesting in terms of like moral quandaries and things, and none of that is there. I feel like the only reason that Nightmare is combined with Spectre in this is because they thought it would be a cool visual. But it's just Probably. Spectre. Like, it doesn't really look like Nightmare because they. It's like it's just like white skin. Well, Spectre already had that. Like, he's tall and skinny. <laughs> he's okay. tall and skinny. That's all it is. It, it it's it's an odd choice. Um, and he's using. He's and... got like his. He's doing like the finger p- position of like magic things, almost like he's Baron Mordo. I actually think he. His costume, like with the like the lines and everything, I look. I think he his design. He looks like a cross between Spectre and Baron Mordo, which could have potentially been a far more interesting amalgamation. Yeah, like Baron Mordo dies and is forced to become the Spectre. That works for me, right? And is collecting souls to somehow remove his curse or something. I don't know. Yep. Um. Yeah, and uh, and so we have our, our uh, Hal Jordan cameo at the beginning, right? Which I I I mentioned this in my thing. Like, okay, so right off the bat, we're because even though this is Speed Demon issue one, they want us to pretend like these books have been going along for decades. So we've got this whole thing where, and this is picking up on like the state of Green Lantern at the time, who Hal Jordan was now. Uatu the Watcher crossed with the Guardian. That's kind of cute. I, I I don't mind that. That's that's an interesting. That one was yeah. fine. Yeah. Um, and he's got this again a lightsaber that he activates twice, um, like on the first page and on the second, and he's gonna kill Hal, and he he like admits that he 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 was the real traitor to the Starbrand Corps, and he killed all of the other Watchers so that they couldn't uncover this thing or whatever, and then after the Speed Demon kills the Watcher. Then he kills Hal too. <laughs> like, 
I think so, yeah. Yeah, which is, it's a kind of a kick in the face, because you're like, oh, he's rescued Hal Jordan, and now he's murdering him. Who's apparently the star brand. Okay. But he's like, he's uh, he's he's killing him because he's a murderer, but didn't Uatu just say he killed those people? Like, that's what I thought. Um, I guess there are... Unless he's guilty of something else. Yeah, I guess there are other people he murdered which we don't get any exposition on, so it just seems like Speed Demon just killed a dude. <laughs> Who might have been innocent? Exactly. Also, um, just like Trey mentioned earlier with Bruce Wayne, um, this is another example where we see a character seemingly as their full self in a different job where they've already been amalgamated into another character. For Hal Jordan, he's supposed to be Hal Stark, the Iron Lantern. Right. Um, one thing I will say I like about the cold open here, not that it makes any sense, no. but but if you're going to start sort of in the middle like this, um, what's smart about it is if you know anything at all about the state of Green Lantern at that time with Hal Jordan becoming Parallax, you can sort of follow along with those opening pages even though they don't make sense. The only thing I could think of is it's possible Hal Jordan was a soul of power. So that's him collecting his soul. Yeah, I, I totally got that part, um, that he's a soul of power. But it's specifically said, uh, many murders you have committed, it must be admitted. So do you kill someone when you take their soul of power? Um, that's what Speed Demon does, yes. And this is our hero. Yep. Uh, well, but I mean, if they did a better job of establishing, like, they, they and again... Part of the exposition is that some of these souls that they're of souls of power are absolutely pure, like Iris, or absolutely corrupt. If they did a better job of establishing that Hal's soul was corrupt, and that's why he needs to die, and that's why Speedyman is taking him, that would make more sense. Except you undercut that by having somebody else confessing to his crimes in the in like the first moment or whatever. This also establishes, right. but you don't understand it until later that. The reason he's doing this is to, like, collect these souls or, or to stop Night Spectre from getting them. But, like, this whole race of who can get these souls doesn't, isn't explained until, like, 13, 14 pages later. Like, like I, a I, lot of it's I on, underst- like, the last two pages. Yeah, and I didn't understand that these guys were going after the same thing. Like, that there was this race to collect them. I just thought he was trying to stop Night Spectre from doing this to save Iris' soul. Like, it's not... It's not, right. like, established that that's what the Speed Demon's agenda is, too. So, you're right, yeah, it's not until the very end, like the epilogue, almost. I have a theory. Uh, I yes. think the reason why this story is so hard to follow, and we have such a hard time figuring out what's going on here, is that it's bad. <laughs> I think the writing so- is bad. And the art is bad. The art is for Salvador Larocca, who is who definitely a couple of years after this really hits a stride and becomes a solid artist. Um, it, this is early in his career, and yeah, it's some of the action scenes in this are incomprehensible. Um, he like some of these pages I, are really cluttered. Um, uh, it's I, I agree, but I will play devil's advocate here and just say wah, wah. Um, that it reads a lot like 
some of the Ghost Rider comics from this time that I read as a kid. Um, that's not a compliment necessarily. <laughs> um, it's consistent. I, except I, I ate them up at the time. I loved it. And it was almost purely aesthetic, mm-hmm. you know, because the stories made no sense. I, I was following um, uh, Rise of the Midnight Suns. I remember getting that one. Yeah. And I revisited yeah. it about two years ago. And <laughs> it was hard. It was hard to get through it again. We're we're getting there. We're, we're, we're eventually going to get to that one. But yeah, like I... One of my favorite comics as a kid, just in terms of how cool I thought it was, was an issue of Spirits of Vengeance. Um, the cover had Venom hanging upside down from a pipe, holding the chains that, uh, holding uh, Ghost Rider's skull by the chain. Uh, and the title was Spirits of Vengeance, except over Vengeance, the word Venom was spray painted over it. <laughs> and basically, the whole book was like that. It was it was uh, Johnny Blaze and Danny Catch and Venom and Spider Man shows up and Doctor Strange shows up and there's demons everywhere and none of it makes a lick of sense. <laughs> it was probably like the second or third part of a five part story, but I loved it and it was purely because of how cool in a '90s way I thought it was. All right. Well, you can keep trying to defend this, but I'm going to get into some other ways in which it's bad. Um, on on page eleven. Um, there are some lettering mistakes in terms of, like, placement of word balloons and stuff. Uh, this is, um, uh, because the pages are numbered, it's right after the Night Spectre shows up to try and get, um, Green Goblin and, uh, Speed Demon spirits him away. So on the next page, it begins with the word Victor. That word balloon is, like, drifting off into space, but that's still coming from, um, Night Spectre. It's, it's him con- continuing his thought and it's like separate because he he's saying something else but also like the the greenish effect around his word balloons are missing on these words and then yeah. on the next panel you've got um speed demon is holding green goblin over the side of a cliff and green goblin's word balloon the tail is going the wrong direction it's like pointing to the moon and it's just yeah the lettering <laughs> on this one is a little bit janky for a couple of these panels it is and looking at it again, um, like what's weird is they preserve the, the green effect on the, the speech bubbles for when Night Spectre is possessing Green Goblin, but they forgot to put it in in that middle section. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like he's doing that just for dramatic effect, and then like when he's alone, when he's like, oh, I don't have to... <laughs> I actually really like that, that he's like affecting a voice. Yeah. It's like, wait a minute, I don't have to do my PJ Frightful impression right now. I'm all alone here. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, this this is not the best that Amalgam had to offer. No, I think something like Super Soldier, again, Spider-Boy, Iron Lantern were much more fun books. And they, they did a better job of the making it feel like you've been reading these characters for the longest time. Also, did you catch that... The Etrigan demon that uh, that Blaze Allen is bonded to is actually Jay Garrick. Yes, because I had to read that page like three times to figure out that that's what he was saying. And if you look at the statues, I guess it's like page twenty-two, mm-hmm. which I don't know why they're statues because originally they were spirits in tubes, but right. now they're statues right. for some reason. Um, yep. 
Jay Garrick has obviously been amalgamated with somebody, but I'm not sure who. He seems sort of stretchy. Kind of tornado-y, but those are two, two DC characters, so... Well, it, right. it, it looks like he was in the middle of, like, running or, like, doing some kind of, like, thing. like Or he's, like, a living lightning bolt or, like, energy, like, cackling around or something. Because, mm. like, the helmet and everything, it's, it looks like there's almost... It would be, like, a speed effect coming off of him that just got frozen. But again, none of this is explained. Like, it, for, all, for all I know, it's, like, a coloring mistake. Like... But I don't know. I, I just, I can't, yeah. That, I got to that part, I was like, wait a minute, what the heck did Jay Garrick have to do with this story? And I was like, wait. Yeah, because I, I think later on, um, they they revise it a little bit, and Jay is short for Jason. He's Jason Garrick. So they're Jason Blood. looping in a little bit of Jason Blood, but also a little bit of the Carter Slade Phantom Rider. Mm. Okay. So he's like the Golden Age version so he was a cowboy mm, he was i don't think it's clear what he was um other than the first speed demon and that he actually was bonded with etrigan in the golden age which was how you get the demon that is then bonded to uh blaze allen you know what i'm gonna stop talking because the more i talk the less i'm willing to defend this <laughs> Okay, let's let's get to the part at the end where the implication is that maybe the Night Spectre spirit has is the demon host for the Wally West version of the Speed Demon, which would make Wally West the 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 host that they've just talked about in conversation. Right, but also if Merlin gave him that power and he showed up to stop, like, what about like when what about when the Night Spectre was possessing? Green Goblin. Like, he had already had a human host or whatever, or he was already possessing Green Goblin. For some reason, we have no idea why he needed to possess him in that moment, when he's in his own realm of, like, the realm of nightmare or dream or whatever it is. Like, when he, this is the place where he's supposed to be all-powerful. Why does he need a human host at this point to confront? And then, if this is, like, like, if he's doing this here, and then the implication is his spirit is also taking over Wally West somewhere else to come back and kill him here, like... This made no sense. Like, I'm, okay, I, okay. I'm, I'm gonna. This is not the worst comic book I have ever read, but this is definitely one of them. Like, like it, it's probably one of the least comprehensible ones that I've read. Yeah, All right, like, there, there's just nothing rewarding about this comic. Check I'm it sorry. out. I'm going to um, no prize it, which um, Ryan, that's a little Marvel term we like to use. Uh, yeah, I'm familiar. <laughs> uh, 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 a baldy lover like yourself would understand. Um, but, okay. I think the Merlin who makes the deal with Wally is actually Night Spectre. Oh. He's not really Merlin. And it's Night Spectre pretending to be Merlin, then he shows up with Speed Demon and his realm, I guess, of an aspect of himself in order to trick Speed Demon into thinking they've had this big final showdown, but then really using it as a way to divert attention so he could possess Wally as Kid Demon. And that's all I got. I... 
think nobody should have to work that hard to make it make sense. I mean, this is nothing new for 90s comics trying to make them make sense. I I know, I know. Like, if that were the case, they needed to do a better job of explaining it, or they needed to reveal it in a later issue. But if they knew this was a one-shot and it wasn't a continuing series, that's just... Uh, like a failure to to tell a, con- a coherent story, so yeah, like like it ends on a cliffhanger, <laughs> but it's not a cliffhanger that makes me want to read more. It just leaves me scratching my head. I don't know. I also feel like that last panel is purely there so they can do the classic Spectre final panel of the uh, silhouette in the foreground and the. Uh, drawing of the Spectre what Jim in the Apollo sky would above do him. during the Adventure Comics run. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a nice homage in that sense. I don't know. I've got nothing. I think this comic may yeah, have broken me. It's it's not great. Um, there are a handful of amusing moments, but probably not enough to justify the cover price. Um, especially now that these are relatively hard to find because. Due to the the cross publishing gimmick, they are pretty much never reprinted. Yeah, uh, these comics are very hard to find right now. I I do actually snap them up whenever I see them in uh, back issue boxes, but it it's not very often. Let me see how much a trade would be of this. Because the there were trades at one point because they they divided them up. DC printed some and Marvel printed the others, but they've been out of print for a while now. Hold up. My understanding is that the current state of internal politics between the two companies means that we probably won't get a reprint in a in a very long time. Yeah, I would be surprised. Currently, if we look at Amazon, these books are going f- the trades are going for anything from 50 to 80 dollars a piece. That sounds about right. And Single issues, you know, depending on which one it is and how rare it is. I haven't looked at Speed Demon specifically, but in general, the ones I've gotten have ranged from $5 to 10 or $15. There's a lot of amalgam to like. This comic is not one of them. No, it's not really demonstrating the, the best potential of the gimmick. But it may illustrate one of the best examples of... 90s comics? It is of its era, that is for sure. Through and through. Absolutely it is. I'll just, yeah, my, my final thoughts on this on this story, like, I mentioned, you asked me, hey, do you guys want to be, do you want to be on Tomb of Ideas? I was like, oh, I love Marvel horror books. Absolutely. Bait and switch. <laughs> like, we're going to talk about Amalgam. I'm like, oh, all right, that's not what I agreed to. And you, you, you lent me this issue to read. This was the first one I read. Second bait and switch. I'm like, this. Uh, <laughs> I don't want that. Dude. Oh. You signed um, a contract daily. No backing out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, in a weird coincidence, um, both this book and the next book we're going to talk about seem to take place in Gotham. Yeah, yeah. And, well, oh. yeah, and we'll, we'll definitely be able to tell which one had the Marvel 90s talent and which one had the DC Marvel talent. Or DC 90s talent. Yeah, yeah, a lot of these, a lot of the Malcolm stories um, seem to take place in Marvels for some reason. Reason either, sorry, seem to place take place in Gotham for some reason. 
Well, that was, I mean, that was, for for 90s DC, that was the place to be. Yeah, because I know um, Dark Claw takes place in Gotham. I think the JLX has their headquarters in Gotham. Probably. I mean, Batman, for at this point, has long been their most popular, most successful thing. Everybody knows what Gotham is. Everybody can... If you're a Marvel yeah. fan who's never read DC, but you're picking this up, you at least know what Gotham City is. You've heard of that before, because you've seen the movies. So, it's right. just... It's a lot easier than saying, you know, this takes place in Keystone City, and even though the, the location couldn't matter less. Um, but, yeah. Actually, one of the references that I didn't get was the Quentin Carnival. What was the... What was the Quentin a reference to? Because that's a good what was, question. What was Ghost Ghost Rider's um, mentor in the the stunt show? It was what could the I don't know what the Quentin refers to. What what other circuses were there? I did like in the background oh, during the wedding scene. You mentioned we see the other the other people, but it looks like the um the the circus of crime is in the background of that. Like you can see the ringmaster right. with his hat in the background and and some of those other characters. That's right. Um, but like it's it's not like the um. The, the Haley Circus from, like, uh, you know, the, the Flying Graysons or um, Dead Man's Circus. It wasn't the Quentin Carnival. Uh, oh. I've, I've, I've been sort of digging while we Was there a traveling circus in Marvel? I don't no, know. the Quentin Carnival was the circus that uh, Blaze grew up in. Johnny Blaze. Oh, was it? Okay. okay. Yes. And that's where he met Roxy okay, so that is and the... Roxy's dad, who I can't remember the name of right now. Um. Even though we crash, crash, crash. Thank you. Even though we've yeah. just covered like a bunch of issues where he's the bad guy, but we've been in, stuck in the middle of several issues where he was not, and they were not good. And I've tried my best to forget. Um. Them. Yeah. There's a whole thing about racially insensitive depictions of Native Americans that we'd rather not talk about right now. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Well, thank you. I couldn't. I didn't remember that he was in the Quentin Carnival. I I could only remember Crash Simpson. Yeah, yeah, because I think Simpson is not the original like owner of that carnival. Mm-hmm. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. So, have we exhausted all who had to say about Speed Demon? <laughs> I. I hope so. <laughs> so until they come out with Speed Demon issue two. Uh, actually. Oh God, no. He appeared again. Where? It, there was. I see. It looks okay. like he appeared in the DC Marvel All Access, which. Okay, All Access. Okay. That was that, that. was a one shot. Yeah. That that was sort of like when twenty ninety nine collapsed, and they did that one book that had all the characters mm-hmm. in it. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, like I was about to say, until they come out with. A- Speed Demon number two. We'll be right back after this message. Tomorrow on Batman, when a winged creature terrorizes Gotham, ah, get away! Witnesses accuse the wrong man. The Batman's been sighted breaking into Phoenix Land, and the police declare war. I want him by any means necessary. On the prime suspects, we'll smoke him out. Watch the animated series Batman tomorrow afternoon on Fox. And we're back to the Tomb of Midnight with our next issue, Bat-Thing number one. Uh, The story title on this is Someone to Watch Over Me, 
Cover artists are Rodolfo DiMaggio, Bill Sienkiewicz, and Patrick Martin. Uh, the writer is Larry Hama. Pencils are by Rodolfo DiMaggio. Inks are by Bill Sienkiewicz. And the colorists are Gloria Vasquez and Alan Jameson. Um, the editors are Dennis O'Neill and Jordan B. Gorfinkel. Do we want to talk a little bit about the cover before we jump into the summary here? I mean... We did it for the other one. We, we did. Uh, we, uh, it's an interesting cover in that it's not like we have a whole lot of, of Man-Bat comic book covers to really compare it to, but it, it, I'd say it's probably closer to a Man-Bat cover than it is to a Man-Thing cover. Yeah, definitely the the urban setting. Um, I, I mean, I could almost have seen this as a Batman cover or, or like a Nightwing cover around this era, um, with yeah. you know, the cops spread out in the in the background. It's it's an overhead shot of the Bat Thing, a cross between Bat uh, between Man Bat and, and Man Thing, um, swinging down, picking up. Looks like he picked up a biker and is like picking him up and like lifting him off. And it looks like the bike was with the biker for a certain amount of time before it dropped out and it's like falling down to the to the ground. Right. Yeah, it's a really, um, uh, it, it's, it does a very good job of evoking sort of this, this moment. Uh, it doesn't feel very static. Right, right. Actually, like, in terms of just, like, the pose and, like, the setting of being in the middle air and, like, grabbing some, like, hood or goon or something, like, off the ground, it reminds me of, like, the first Batman cover on, like, Detective Comics 27 or the first Spider-Man on Amazing Fantasy 15. It's got that type of thing yeah. of, like, the hero swinging down out of the sky and, like, picking up the bad guy or something like that. Yeah, it, it's a very, uh, sort of this-is-your-introduction-to-the-character kind of pose. Um, and, of course, we've got the little uh, uh, blurb at the bottom, which feels, to me, it, it feels 90s, but in a throwback kind of way. The shocker you never expected to see that kind of uh, cover text that, that drives people to pick up the issue. But yeah, I, I, and of course the, the uh, title, the, the logo uh, is combining sort of uh, the, the Man-Thing logo with something more in line with uh, maybe some of the Bat books. I mean, I like the amalgamation between Man-Thing and Man-Bat. Yeah, um, it's... For the most part, it's more Man-Bat than it is Man-Thing. Um, you, you've got the tendrils across the nose, which is nice. Um, and the green color is very sort of uh, Man-Thing. But other than that, it's mostly Bat. It's an unexpected amalgamation. Again, it is. It's not... but, it, but then when you think about it, it makes sense. Yeah, but of course it's not the most obvious amalgamation. It, it is surprising that it's an amalgamation that would get his own book true as opposed to being uh sort of a, a a cameo like a like the last book was so full of cameos true and this one has barely any the uh, i imagine the other idea that they went with was man man and they just said eh, let's, <laughs> let's try let's try bat thing right uh, so I think that said, let's get into the summary and then we can talk some more about what's going on in the book on the other side. Take us away. On a rainy Gotham night, Detective Clark Bullock meets his partner Christine Montoya at the scene of a murder. It's initially flagged as a mob hit, 
but Bullock recognizes the claw marks and acid burns as the calling card of the mysterious Bat-Thing. To their surprise, the Bat-Thing hasn't actually left the scene of the crime, and it swoops down over them before disappearing. Bullock leaves the scene to check on Francine Ellen Salas, now that her husband Kirk has attacked again. Unknown to Bullock, he's being followed by an unknown antagonist, who in turn is being followed by the Bat-Thing. Meanwhile, Francine Salas is tormented by nightmares of the monster her husband has become. She comforts her young daughter as Bullock arrives to explain the new situation regarding the Bat-Thing, who is perched on a nearby ledge. The man who followed Bullock calls in the address to another stranger. And meanwhile at the police station, Montoya realizes that someone has been following Mrs. Salas and her daughter. Montoya rushes out to warn Bullock that he's in danger. Bullock is then attacked by the man from the phone call, along with the rest of his gang. He takes out the gang, but sees Bat-Thing fly into the Salas' window, and Bullock rushes upstairs to protect them. But Bat-Thing isn't there to attack, but to protect. He takes out the remaining villains, the leader of whom is revealed by Montoya to be Fat Freddy, who held a grudge against Bullock after being sent to prison. The Salases became targets because Bullock visited them so often. Bullock realizes that his protectiveness actually put them in danger, and the Bat-Thing returns to the swamp outside Gotham and rests in the forgotten lab where Kirk Salas first experimented on himself. You know, if they're searching so hard for Kirk Salas, why didn't they think to look in a lab that he was using? Because it's a secret lab. But I feel... Okay, that does make more sense than what I thought it was. I thought he, as Bat-Thing, had made this lab. Oh, no, no. I Well, because there's the picture of him as a human with his family. And there's, like, dust everywhere and cobwebs. So I figure that is where he initially transformed. And so that became his, his, his cave, if you will. I suppose that makes sense. I, I, although, where... In relation to Gotham City, is this swamp? Uh, where was Slaughter Swamp in the in the Golden Age? Was that outside Gotham? Exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, because Solomon Grundy transitions from being a uh, was it Green, Green Lantern, Lantern yep. villain uh, to being a Bat villain, and and Slaughter Swamp is somewhere in the outskirts of the Gotham area. So, yeah, I'd say that makes sense. Basically, Gotham City has whatever train is necessary for the story. Yeah, I I will say one of the cleverest things about this book, because we've talked about this before with Man-Thing, one of the challenges of a Man-Thing comic is telling a story where your title character doesn't communicate. Um, And so the smart thing here is that this is secretly... uh, a Gotham Central right. story. Right, yeah, Bullock is seems to be our protagonist. And it's right, it's it's how they encounter the monster. Right. And the and the sort of almost relationship that develops where they're both protecting the same people. Yeah. And actually I'm I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask 
like how much does this feel like a man thing comic because i've read i've read the initial stories from like adventure into fear but once man thing got his own solo title i've only read first two issues i think um so when i first read this story my thought was i was like okay they they he has like the weird face tendrils and the green skin like man thing but otherwise this could be a man bat story yeah the the main well and there's also that um he reacts to fear right that, right that yeah, yeah, when yeah. people become afraid he has right, the acid, acid power, power. Yeah, yeah, he has that too yeah. but in uh, terms of like the conventions of the type of story does this yeah it, it's this is far more police procedural than than horror and Francis Ellen Salas seems a much more sympathetic character than Ellen Salas, who yeah. turned out to be an AIM agent, if you don't remember. Right. They're, they they lean way harder on the DC half of the amalgamations in these than the Marvel. Because this was the DC publication, this was the DC house, like, working on this book. Sure. Sure. Um, I... The the main difference I think is Man Thing is not directly involved in a whole lot of the plot. Whereas in, in a lot of the Man Thing stories we've covered so far, Man Thing gets involved early on and pretty much stays involved. Which you mentioned it's Gotham Central, very Gotham Central like. Gotham Central wouldn't come around until 2002 and that was greg rucka so right and ed brubaker yeah yeah this is definitely innovative. there was a there was a gcpd miniseries like a four issue miniseries that might have been around this time um so i know they they had definitely explored this um yeah and i think uh, i think chuck dixon still would have been on the bat books around this time um, Batman GCPD was 1996, and it was uh, Chuck Dixon and Jim Aparo with Bill Sienkiewicz covers. Mm, okay. Oh. Or, or actually, oh, no, the, it looks like the, the art was Aparo and Sienkiewicz. Okay. So, yeah, like, there were... I can see the line from that to this. Because that was a, a Harvey Bullock murder mystery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Who is Harvey amalgamated with here? Um, somebody named Clark. Somebody, a, a black detective Clark. I have no idea. It does not actually say. <laughs> <laughs> like, it lists, like, a combination for all these other characters and not for that one. So if you lovely listeners know who Harvey Bullock is amalgamated with here, please let us know. I feel like as somebody uh, from the Man Thing comic we haven't gotten to yet. That seems very likely. That seems very likely. So we're getting a thing about how could how could you do a Marvel horror podcast that you don't even know who Clark Abraham is. <laughs> and that's not his actual name. I just pulled the name Abraham out of my tuchus. Right. Um, but yeah, I guess that's something that sort of stands out is that the amalgamations in a lot of cases here seem far less obvious and less on the nose and and maybe 
less essential to your understanding of the characters. Really, this could be any kind of horror story. This doesn't even need to have Man-Thing in it. I mean, heck, this could be a Bat-Thing story. Right. For for all the stuff going on in it. It's... That being said, I feel like that makes it a better story. It actually works as a one-shot, which is nice. Yeah, I, I mean, I enjoy this. Like you said, like I mean, I, I read this, I was like, well... That didn't have to be an amalgam book. That could have just been a man-bat story or, or some just kind of like original monster type of thing. But as a story itself, there are maybe a little bit of kind of like weird things, but all, all things considered, it was a fun little like crime story with a little bit of a like a supernatural monster element. Like it it didn't feel too far afield from like some like... Like it could have been a man-bat or it could have been a Morbius type of story or something like that. Um, yeah, like yeah. right... And... And... and, and uh... Hama does a pretty good job of, of nailing that noirish crime story kind of tone. Right now, um, we've just started getting into the Marvel horror magazines, which were like these huge anthology books. I'm sure you're familiar with the type. And this very much feels like a story that could have just been in one of those. Yeah. I like this stuff about Harvey not wanting to carry his radio because it rubs against his spare tire. Being... Right. <laughs> Being a fat man myself, I feel the pain. Well, and that that feels very Harvey Bullock. <laughs> that that was actually one of the things that where I questioned though, because they draw they they make a uh, a deliberate point to like point out like his size and his body and everything. But when the goons are coming to 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 take shots at him, he rolls underneath his car. And he's got, like, enough yeah. mobility to, like, get his gun and, like, roll out the back, the other side and everything. I was like, that's... How much space is underneath this car? Oh, if you want to talk about the gunfight, let's point out that he takes at least four shots to the chest, even wearing Kevlar still standing. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I actually really love how, for just those few pages, it becomes... Like a late 80s canon films <laughs> yeah. action movie? Yes, it does. Like, there is no... Okay, you're not taking... Even with Kevlar on, you are not taking four shots to the chest and still standing. You were at least falling down. And then the recoil of the shotgun is what throws him <laughs> Yeah, that's feet. what it looks like, yeah. <sighs> Actually, like, the shotgun seems like his primary thing. Whoever he is a mix of Bullock and whatever Marvel character, and hopefully you'll find out during the course of your coverage... I have a feeling it's probably a, a, a copper detective who has a shotgun or, or who noticeably uses a shotgun to his thing. Like, that seems right. like his, his deal. Um, yeah. The, I, I had a, a few little things, um, a few little questions, uh, uh, some of them related to the art. First of all, the the killer fat Freddy Finelli, who ironically is not fat, um, we see a couple of images of him. Like, the first time we see him, he's in the car following Bullock, and we see a, an image of him on, like, the um, the rap sheet that Montoya sees. I have a feeling, like, the the way, I think it's Sienkiewicz's art that really sells it, he looks very much like Alec Holland, the basis for Swamp Thing, as he was drawn by Bernie Wrightson. Like, 
though yeah. he's got like this really kind of like pronounced like schnoz type of nose his his ears kind of stick out like the the set, like the droop of his lips like just the way Sinkevich inks him I just think he looks very much like a Bernie Wrightson version of Alec Holland before he became the Swamp Thing. Um, I hadn't thought about that, but that's really yeah, cool. And, and which, considering Swamp Thing and Man Thing, that, that connection, even though he's not a monster himself, like, and he, he's never like named anything like that, I think that might have just been the artist. And I don't know uh, if DiMaggio was involved with that or if it's just Sienkiewicz's inking, but I, I think that's partly like a little bit of an Easter egg, and I really, really liked it. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, on the other hand, the the way Kirk Langster or uh, Kirk Salas is drawn when um, Franny wakes up and she's having this dream, she's like, "It's you. You look exactly like you did before." Obviously, before the thing that turned him in, he looks like he's thirty years older than her. <laughs> like, yeah. considering considering Honestly, it looks like I... they have like a five or six year old daughter. It's like. He... Honestly, when because when you first see him, she's like seeing him through the peephole, um, and I thought he looked like the ventriloquist. Yeah. <laughs> so what? She was his grad student or something, or quite possible, quite possibly. That, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but I'm trying to. Think, I was like, that's not the way Ted Salas looked. That's not the way Kirk Langstrom looked. I'm like, what is what is no. this artistic base on? What? Because they they were both like man of action yeah, scientists. Yeah. I just, I guess it, somebody gave the note, draw a scientist-looking dude. <laughs> yeah. S- and I guess they wanted him to be unimposing to contrast with the viciousness of the, the bat thing. My only, the only thing that kind of like hung me up on the story was like right after that moment when Franny wakes up from her bad dream and their daughter comes in and she's telling her daughter, she's like, I'm all right, Kelly. It was probably that frozen pizza. I'm like... Really? Who gets a bad, like, reaction or something like that from, from frozen pizza? I've heard of people, like, using, like, oh, something I ate as, like, an excuse when they have, like, you know, like, other kinds of, like, issues. But I was like, frozen pizza? Really? That's what you're blaming it on? It was store brand. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, one of the odd things about this issue that the other issue didn't have, and Trey, you pointed this out to me, is there's a letters page. It is a bonkers letters page. Did, did you take a look at this letter letters page? I did. Ryan, did you? I, I didn't read all the letters, but I just kind of like read some of the, um, like who they, they were like from and everything like that. And it, it was kind of cute. Uh, yeah. So, it, I mean, it's clearly constructed for this because there's no way there would be letters for an amalgam book. But, and, uh, and like even like the names but, of like who's sitting in letters, like the first one, Ernst but, Stavro Blumenfeld. <laughs> Yep, uh, Cletus yeah. Arkham from Ravencroft. <laughs> Samantha Combat. Uh, but I think my favorite was uh, the one, it was uh, the top, it was the third column, the, the last letter there, where between the letter and the response, they construct this whole elaborate publication history for these characters that don't even show up in the book. <laughs> um, I'll go ahead and read the letter. Um, Dear Editor, I'm curious about the dark direction the storyline has taken. Binglebury, the two-headed dog, and Alicia Murdoch, the little blind girl, are such bizarre, complex characters to be appearing in a regular comic book. What is going through Larry Hama's mind? And the drawings by Rodolfo DiMaggio were simply stunning. 
How do these characters fit into the Amalgam universe in continuity? Have they appeared in other books I don't know about? Are they coming back? Is Alicia a mutant? How does she walk through walls if she isn't? How does Bungleberry learn to speak Serbio-Croatian? I know these are a lot of questions, but I really do want to know. Samantha Combat, Brooklyn, California. <laughs> um, and then also just as a sort of nice little nod to the history of Man Bat and Bat Thing. Um, and probably also Swamp Thing, I guess. Uh, in one of the other letters, they uh, ha- they introduce Amalgam comic book creators um, because the Bat Thing was the creation of Marv Ween and Bernie Plouffe. <laughs> I-, I do like that they amalgamated Mark, um, Bernie Wrightson and Mark- Mike Plouffe because that, I mean... That's kind of It perfect. is, and we've noticed some similarities between their art before, so... It, it it's a nice little shout out yeah but no i i definitely think this was by far the strongest of the the amalgam books that we've looked at um and, and like you like like you said it, it was partly because they didn't lean so much on the gimmick i think they just told a good story yeah there was less cute little cute moments than i think at some other amalgam books i've seen where again they they just told Larry Hama the gimmick and he's like okay I could I could write that and he just wrote it as a straight right. supernatural crime story yep and I mean I it plays into his wheelhouse I mean I I always have a love for Larry Hama because I GI Joe was my gateway into comics those were the first comics I ever read um, but he also he sure. had a, a long good run on Wolverine and yeah he definitely gets more of that sort of grounded sensibility with like that the noir feel and, and like kind of like the basic combat so i think writing this type of story was it probably came fairly natural to him and i think he's also just a professional enough that if he got this gig out of nowhere he's like all right well this is what i'm gonna do so although yeah. i yeah. did like to shout out in the letter column where um iman green goldstein is complaining about larry hama and he says I know that a lot of older readers cut their teeth on Hama's Sergeant Fury and the Combat Heavy Joes <laughs> of Easy Company. <laughs> I like that. That was that was a nice little uh, nod there. So the to the various war comics that the two the two somewhere had. our friend Chad Bauer's head just perked up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, this was this was a fun one. Um, it, this is the kind of book that I would read more of. Yeah. It's it it it's much more on much more solid ground, I think, than the Speed Demon story was. It was enjoyable. Yeah. I read this over a lunch like, break, and I enjoyed myself. Yeah, and it, honestly, the the way this seems to play out from issue to issue, it, it's sort of like um, the the what ifs and the else worlds, where sometimes you get one that was really interested in telling a thought-provoking or interesting or entertaining story, and then sometimes it was just about playing out the gimmick to its extreme. Yeah. Uh, as far as what-ifs go, I think I could think of a good example. What if the Marvel bullpen had become the Fantastic Four? Right. Uh, I think Jack Kirby's last work for Marvel. Fascinating. All, all right, I think that does it for this issue, and when we come back, we're going to grill our guest, Ryan Daly. Hooray! It's midnight. Hello, listeners. It's your friend, PJ Frightful. That's PJ as in podcast jockey. 
and I'm dropping dreadful new episodes every two weeks. When the clock strikes midnight, the podcasting hour shines a candle on the dark corners of DC Comics. Those supernatural sagas of Swamp Thing, Dead Man, The Spectre, and more. The Podcasting Hour. It's a rotating anthology series boasting the terrifying talents of Ryan Daly, Rob Kelly, Paul Hicks, Ben Avery, Doug Zavisha, and other unfortunate souls. Prepare for the unexpected, open a doorway to nightmare, and enter the houses of mystery and secrets. The moon is full, and the dark spirits are rising. For it's midnight, the podcasting hour. Part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Beware. Welcome back to Tomb of Midnight, an amalgam horror podcast. I'm James Hickson. I'm Trey Lawson. And I am Ryan Daly. And Ryan, as our guest this week, we should probably ask you a few questions if you don't mind. I don't mind. I love talking about myself. Assuming the questions are about me. You'll fit right in here. So, first off, tell our listeners where they can find you. Yeah, uh, you can find... I have a number of podcasts over at the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Um, Certainly the show that put me on your radar and, and brings me to this one is Midnight the Podcasting Hour, which covers DC horror comic books. Uh, these include the various DC anthology horror titles, such as uh, Midnight the Witching Hour, uh, House of Secrets, House of Mystery, Tales of the Unexpected, things like that, uh, as well as the early Swamp Thing stories. Um, I once upon a time covered a Dead Man issue, and I want to get back to more to Dead Man. Um, the Spectre stories from Adventure Comics and various other you know horror-related titles, all published by DC Comics. Um, I am also the host of Cheers Cast, which covers my favorite TV show, Cheers. Um, Batman Nightcast, which I co-host with Chris Franklin, covering the Batman comics after Crisis on Infinite Earths. Um, uh, at some point in the past, I had a Star Wars podcast and, and various other shows, and you can find those over at the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Wow, where did you find the time? Uh, <laughs> I don't as much anymore, which, which is why the the release schedule is is ever changing for some of these. So, I, in fact, I probably won't get another midnight episode out until probably around Halloween. All right. Now, of course, because we're a Marvel horror podcast, we do need to ask you, um, who's better, Coach or Woody? Ah, <laughs> uh, God. I mean, I I have so much love, like. Everything Coach said was either adorable or hilarious or sweet, but Woody had eight seasons to Coach's three, so that gives Woody a tremendous advantage. Woody had a lot of room for growth. Uh, Woody had a long-term love story and romantic relationship throughout that show that was just so endearing. So as much as I love Coach and I would have taken a bullet for that man, um, I, I think I, Woody just because of the sheer numbers and, and like the longevity of the character. All right. And of course, my next question is going to be about Diane. Rebe- oh, sorry. <laughs> okay. I just got a text from Mr. Gravely. Oh, sorry. Why do you, what brought you to DC horror? I couldn't tell you because I cut my teeth on Marvel horror and I probably like Marvel horror more. Um, I have told this story like in the past, like when I was first starting to collect comics, um, which was the late 80s, early 90s, 
um, a friend of mine, I, I, I sort of, for a short period of time, I semi-inherited a shoebox of 70s Marvel genre comics. And it was like tw- a 20-issue run of Tomb of Dracula, half a dozen issues of Werewolf by Night, uh, one or two Ghost Riders, and then like some random things like uh, Deadly Hands of Kung Fu, I think a Black Panther book in there. Um, but yeah, I, I remember, like, that's how I discovered, you know, Dracula and Werewolf by Night, which is now maybe my favorite comic book ever. Um, and I love those books. And then, yeah, like, in the in the 90s, I, I was collecting, like, you know, Ghost Rider and, and Spirits of Vengeance and Morbius, and I was following those. And I've always loved those characters. And I, I was thinking at some point, I was like, you know, I could do a Marvel horror podcast, but it just seemed really big, and I wasn't sure how to tackle it. And it was just as I was finishing up the Secret Origins podcast, which I did for about a year, year and a half. Um, I, I had just been like consuming a lot of DC characters, and I was really thinking about Dead Man and thinking about Swamp Thing and these other things. And it just sort of came to me of doing this anthology DC podcast, and I, I took it on. And it, because I evidently I didn't know a lot about those books, so it wasn't something that I had years of love for and wanted to embrace it. It was more about discovering DC horror. Like, through this podcast, I have, I've introduced myself to a lot of things that I didn't know about. Whereas if I had been doing a Marvel horror podcast like you are, I, it would have been a lot more, you know, coming from a, from a place of a somewhat more, I, I don't want to say expertise, um, but just comfort and familiarity because I had read those books. Um, but... Yeah, it, it was just kind of, it was a weird sort of snap decision. It was like the middle of October, and I was like, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to release the first episode on Halloween. Um, like, and if I had spent, <laughs> if I had spent like a few days longer thinking about it, I might have made a different decision. But um, but I have enjoyed it. I have enjoyed every single episode. I've, I've covered some wonderful stories. Um, even if I was only covering the Bernie Wrights and Swamp Thing issues, that would be worth the price of admission. Um, or the Aparo Spectre stories, so it's it's a lot of fun. Like as a as a reader, I mean, I I'm jealous of you guys because as a reader, I I always go back to Tomb of Dracula and Monster of Frankenstein and Werewolf by Night. Those those are my jam. But um, it's a lot of fun just because when I pick up a, a DC horror book, I surprise myself and I find something new when I'm when I'm doing it for the show. So that's always a little bit of fun and it keeps it fresh. So just to jump in real quick. Do you have a favorite horror character that you've discovered through uh, your your reading? Um, it, I, it, Swamp Thing. He's he has become one of my favorite DC characters, um, and that was an instance where I I knew the character. I had read the Alan Moore run, but it was a thing where uh, Bernie Wrightson was at a Boston Comic Con, and this was six months before he died. Uh, maybe around wow. then, and I was like, you know, I really want, I, I got like a print of his, but I was like, I really want to get a Bernie Wrightson signed comic book, and I don't have my copy of Batman the Occult with me, or the cult. Um, <laughs> so I went through, I dive, dove through some uh, long boxes that were just there on sale, and I bought the, um, it was the reprint issue saga of the Swamp Thing that covered the first two issues of Swamp Thing, that series, and I, I bought that for four or five bucks or something, brought that over to his table, and he signed it, and I, I talked to him very briefly, um, and then I went home and I read those issues, those stories for the first time. I was like, "This is amazing! I am so, I'm so lucky that I got that got a chance to." Sign him. And then, of course, he died shortly thereafter, and Len Wein died just a few wow. months later too. So both of those creators. Um, so yeah, Swamp Thing is probably he's one of my favorite DC characters now, and um, 
So, and, and I really like that was just something that I discovered in preparation for the podcast. Um, but also just reading more Spectre stuff from like the, what we mentioned before with the uh, John Ostrander and Tom Mandrake era from the nineties um, as well as the old stuff. Um, others. Uh, I do need to get back and read some more dead man. Um, I mean, those are the the big characters. Uh, the Night Force series um, that I actually finished wrapping up my coverage of with Paul Hicks, uh, which was the um, it, it was sort of a, a dark fantasy sci-fi series by uh, Marv Wolfman and Gene Colan, the same guys who did Tomb of Dracula for so long. Um, yeah. That was a that was a a project that started off very strong, and I think it just got away from him, and and Marv Wolfman just didn't know what he was doing with it. I, I it almost seems like a concept that might have been better off as a novel, like a, a Dean Koontz or Stephen King-style novel, at least for the first story that they did, because um, it was very mm. long. And, and I say that not, even though Gene Colan is probably my favorite comic book artist, um, so I wouldn't want to take any more work away from him, but I just think like the approach or what Marv Wolfman had in mind for that, maybe that series should have been a series of novels instead of a series of comic books. Um, but, yeah. We're going to have to get you back on it sometime where we're talking about Werewolf by Night because I'm really interested in hearing why you feel that that's one of your favorite comic series. It, and it's, I mean, I will never say that objectively it is the best because, I mean, like just like pound for pound, I, I think Tomb of Dracula is the better series. Um, gosh, Frankenstein's Monster might even be better, like <laughs> objectively, but there's something about just huh. the, the time when I read those those issues and then I eventually first read the whole series in the essential volumes uh, and then I got the the color omnibus um, but yeah something about it and I've always liked werewolves more than vampires just thematically um, so something about it just like hit me and and the fact that it was set in California instead of New York so it was kind of breaking up the normal Marvel formula um, yeah, there were just there were aspects about it, and and I've recently gone back and reread some of them, and, and listening to some of your early episodes when you're covering those, um, it, yeah, some of some of the things it, it's hard to justify, but it's it's just a thing where I, I just have a love for that book. Um, yeah, I, I don't think it's better than Tomb of Dracula, but I like it a little bit more for personal reasons. All right, um, one last question for you, and it is related. And it may also determine if you leave the tomb alive. <laughs> what are your feelings on Buck Cohen? Oh, mm, I, I had this. If I, I, I remember having this like idea at, at a time of thinking, if they ever continued that thing, like after after the series ended and it went away, Buck would have sold like he he would have written a book or written a screenplay about the werewolf, and he would have turned Jack Russell's life into a movie or a TV show or something like that and totally would have ended up capitalizing on it after Jack like died or went away for a while. Um, I liked him as a supporting character. I, um, I, I kind of thought it, w- it was interesting. Like he was always very close to, to Lissa, maybe too close. God, I'd have to look at that, their relationship again and see if that ever got a little bit creepier than I'm remembering. See, we've always kind of imagined that Jack and Buck are secret lovers. That's interesting. Now I can only, I could see actually. Yeah. Oh gosh, is it? It's either in Werewolf by Night one or it's in Marvel Spotlight four. One of their early scenes, like the next morning, like when they're waking up. I could see that. Yeah, we we definitely got a little bit of the, if not homoerotic, at least homosocial 
I could see that. I definitely could. Yeah. But we also love Buck Cohen deeply, <laughs> and he is uh, he is one of our favorite supporting characters. So you've not offended us, so you can leave the tomb safely. <laughs> <laughs> but would I want to? Well, you're going to have to, because I think this is the end of the episode. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. tell them where uh, they, tell them where they can find you on social media. Uh, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm just, I'm Ryan Daly. Um, I'm usually posting either stuff about comic books or superhero movies or weird stuff that my toddler son is doing that drives me crazy or, or delights me. Um, that's, that's pretty much my whole life these days. It's just comics and dealing with my kid. Um, so yeah, that's it. And then, uh, yeah, you can hear my work at the fire and water podcast network. So. Right, and of course, love listeners, you can always find us at on Twitter at Tomb of Ideas and Facebook at facebook.com slash Tomb of Ideas, a proud member of the Cinepunks podcast group. Yes, and so please do uh, like, rate, review, subscribe, all of those things. Let us know what you think of the episodes. And by all means, please do uh, check out the Fire and Water Network as well. They are putting out some great stuff, too. Mostly cheers. Um, <laughs> hey, as a DC kid, I appreciate their work in, in looking into some of those uh, older Batman comics and horror comics. No, and they've got a great podcast about Firestorm and some fish guy. <laughs> I am also an Aquaman fan, so I will uh, pretend like you did not just insult him. All right, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this very special episode of Tomb of Ideas slash Mysteries slash whatever the heck you else want to call us. And of course, um, until next year, April, April Fools! You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. Until next time, Tomb Lovers Excelsior! That was fun. We should do an episode with good comics sometime.